So thanks again, Katie and Kate listeners, for joining me on Meet in the Middle show, where we share dialogue on complex issues with local thought leaders with differing opinions. My hope is for listeners to gain new perspective and empower freedom of expression. I'm Dan Richardson, and today's topic is the criminal justice system, where law enforcement and mental health collide. My two guests today are Sheriff Lou Valario and Tim McFlynn. Welcome, Sheriff Valario, Lou, and Tim. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Um, I can hear Tim, yours isn't ideal. Um, Okay. Um, Well, nothing like... uh, Nothing like a little technical glitch to start off the show. Um, so as I said, my, my first guest is Sheriff Lou Valario. When I first met Lou um, 22 years ago, he was the assistant police chief for the city of Glenwood Springs when I was a wet-behind-the-ear city council <laughs> member down in Glenwood. And shortly thereafter, Lou was elected Garfield County Sheriff and was subsequently elected another five times, which clearly demonstrates a lot of trust and strong commitment uh, to our county. So thank you, Lou. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And Tim McFlynn. Tim's award-winning career as an attorney and community builder is diverse and extensive. Working as a civil rights lawyer, a special prosecutor, a mediator, and a nonprofit board member. His experience and expertise include social justice issues, alternatives to incarceration, dispute resolution, and many different community issues involving land stewardship and conservation. Tim, your CV is also a testament to an amazing commitment to our community, so thank you. Happy to be here, Dan. All right. Um, Okay. Once again, thanks for being here and being willing to be a respectful model for freedom of expression that I believe is critical to the success of our uh, country. Um, There isn't a day that goes by that we don't hear about an issue involving mental health, law enforcement, the criminal justice system, or all the above. And I would argue that the intersection of all three is one of the most pressing issues we face today. Personally, there is no question that this intersection was the most challenging one for me to navigate as mayor. Thanks, Luke. Luke Yesner, coming to the coming to the rescue. Oh, uh, we got four on. Oh, there we go. Luke's got it. All right. Jeez. Um, Thanks, Luke. All right. Um, first, uh, I thought I'd offer some mental health statistics. In Colorado, one in every four adults experiences a mental health or addiction crisis in any given year. And on the western slope, the suicide rate is two times the national rate. In Colorado, between 2003 and 2018, the prevalence of suicide deaths increased by 57% to a suicide rate of 20 deaths per 100,000 residents, and that's age-adjusted. Between 2017 and 2018, the average annual age-adjusted rate of drug overdose deaths deaths per 100,000 residents was 17. So drug drug overdoses were slightly fewer per capita, but the rate increased across the state almost twice as much as suicide deaths, uh, 111%. So that's quite significant. And today, the link between the lack of investment in our nation's mental health system and the over-reliance on the criminal justice system is undeniable. According to NAMI, the National Alliance for Mental Illness, an estimated 44% of people incarcerated in jail 
and 37% of people incarcerated in prison have a mental health condition. Furthermore, my research indicates that at least 20%, and I've read as high as 50% of law enforcement calls, involve a mental health or a drug-related crisis. And also, according to NAMI, police officers, and it wasn't clear if this included sheriff deputies or not, report higher rates of depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. More police officers die by suicide than in the line of duty, and most law enforcement officers do not seek care for mental health issues. So that was just a, the tip of the iceberg of the research I did, and there's a lot to, to digest, but hopefully the questions and our dialogue will help us dig in. So again, thanks for joining, and here we go. Uh, Lou, I thought I'd start off with you. Do you mind sharing your thoughts as to how mental health impacts the Garfield County Sheriff's Office? Um, so in terms of uh, employees and deputies, and those numbers would include deputies, too, as far okay. as those police numbers. So, okay. yeah, in, in terms of the, the employees that are in the business, it, it's a tough business. I mean, we're, we deal with a lot of, you know, difficult, ugly, traumatic things, and, and that can certainly build up and, and wear on you. And, um, and any, any law enforcement officer, any responder, you know, that's probably um, fire EMT and, and as well as others. So uh, we, we kind of refer to that trauma that builds up over time as um, we don't, We've never dealt with it well in our community, in our in the law enforcement community, and we put it on the shelf and we say, okay, I'll deal with it later. And then we put another thing on the shelf, and before you know it, our shelf breaks, and then it becomes a real serious mental mental problem, which could lead to all sorts of things, everything from you know alcoholism, divorce, um, suicide. And and you're right, um, law enforcement suicides are equal to the rate of returning veterans from from uh, the, the wow. Afghanistan. So, wow, that's pretty intense. Um, and in our conversation, Lou, you mentioned that, uh, or, or I think it was in our conversation, you mentioned that a lot of your that your experience uh, ties with the state as well. A lot of your calls relate to mental health, and it's a it's a big part of your business. They do, and it's increasing every year. And I think your statistics are exactly what we've seen in regards of uh, the number of people in car, in our jail that have mental health issues, and and so we're kind of talking two things. We're talking about you know the, the the criminal justice system and the people we deal with on that end, and then also you know are the people in law enforcement and, and first response and how we deal with that as well. Uh, but you're right. And the other sad statistics which you may may have come across is people that have mental illness that are in jail. It's an average of four times longer to manage their case and get them out of jail than people that don't because of all the additional um, evaluations and, and competency and, and all that. So somebody with, with a mental illness in a jail is likely to spend four times longer in that jail in what we call that pretrial phase um, rather than somebody that doesn't. So. Okay. Um, Tim, how has the rising prevalence in mental health issues impacted criminal justice? Or perhaps a better question is, how well does the criminal justice system address this rising prevalence of mental health? Well, the first thing I would say is it's evolved over the years, and it's gone up and up and up. And I was a deputy DA in L.A. and a special prosecutor in L.A., and I worked with deputy sheriffs and police officers every day for years. And it's the toughest job in our community. And that's uh, the statistics you gave and Lou verified shows that. Mm -hmm. And so what I would say is we really have to ask the ultimate question, do we need to kind of reboot the system of responding 
And when I say that, one of the things I'll share later in the hour is the research I did about how they approach the same issues in Europe. It's not Carbondale, it's not Garfield County, but there are some very instructive ideas. And the work I did showed that using jails for public inebriates, for mentally ill homeless people, is the least cost-effective possible thing to say nothing of it being inhumane. But it's what we do. And I'll give you one statistic. When I started in the mid-60s, the, the um, President's Commission on um, Criminal Justice Task Force Report on Public Drunkenness, first sentence, one out of every three arrests in America is public drunkenness. Shocking. And it's a recidivism recidivism problem because jail doesn't help anybody who has a drinking problem. Agreed. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Tim. Sure. Um, Well, I thought we'd just dive right into uh, some policy questions. And um, this is kind of, um, yeah, it's getting to... The red flag law, which to me um, is one of the laws where, you know, these intersections occur. Um, And so, Lou, if I've understood your responses to gun control laws in the past, you think the emphasis should be on addressing mental health rather than restricting gun access. Is that a fair observation? Yeah, fair to the extent that certainly people with mental illness probably shouldn't be in possession of guns, but that's the $64,000 question. Right. How we fix that. Right. But, yeah, absolutely. So I guess the question is, um, and, and again, you and I talked briefly about this, and I know you, um, I don't know if it being critical is, the, is a fair thing, but you, um, you weren't 100% behind the, the red, flag law, frag law, red flag law. But given the proliferation of firearms in our area and the danger posed by mental health to the public, uh, I think I, another statistic I found was uh, firearm access triples suicide risk. Um, but given those dangers, um, as well as the impact to officers, shouldn't shouldn't embracing the red flag law? I mean, to me, that that seems like that that's one of the best tools we have in our toolbox. But tell me your thoughts. You know, it's interesting. I was just down testifying at the Capitol on a on a gun related bill, and I spoke specifically about red flag law. The problem is we still have some problems with it in terms of due process, taking people's property without due process, constitutional issues. But like I told the uh, the um, committee that I was testifying in front of, that's the right direction to go in. Let's focus on the mentally ill. Let's focus on the people that are having problems. Let's focus on the people that are contemplating suicide. Try to get ahead of the curve rather than waiting for something tragic to happen or like in case of, of programs we offer to the community, let's not wait till they come to jail. Let's get out ahead of it and, and provide programs beforehand. The, the, the difficulties of that are things like, you know, the HIPAA laws, which protect medical records. How do we get to those mental health records if we're not allowed to get to those mental health records? Mm-hmm. And so there's some there's some bumps in the road. But as I as I testified to the uh, to the hearing uh, to the the committee, 
I think we can do that, and we committed as a county sheriff of Colorado to work with our legislature to try to try to improve on that concept of a red flag law. Again, we still see some problematic issues with that, but that's the right direction to head. I will argue all day long it's not the gun, it's the person who chooses to use that gun or that knife or that bomb or that car or whatever it may be. So let's get ahead of that. Let's find out what we can do to intercept these um, people that have mental issues that are likely to harm themselves or other people. Um, Tim, any thoughts on that? You know, the um, thank you, Lou, for testifying and for your point of view. I think the the point you make is absolutely true. It's the person, not the knife or the gun. And our resources, when I said reboot, have to be redirected. I don't know what your department budget is per year. Multiply that by all the counties and municipalities just in this valley. So we're spending a lot of taxpayer money, but are we getting the benefit of all that money? And I would say no. And I would I would say the thing that we should really do is look for a way to have early intervention, early identification, and I have an idea for those who are incarcerated, such as in the jail, Lou. This is the 50th anniversary of the Buddy Program where mentors mentor young people, youth. It's very successful. It's moving to Glenwood Springs this year. And some of the institutions I will give you examples of for every inmate there's a volunteer it's adult buddies for adults and they do this in jails and in prisons so that those people are opportunities to be helped so they don't repeat offend so that they learn while they're in custody they're not in a cage they're in a place where there's training learning and rewarding activities with a buddy I'm not saying the jail is equipped for that Chief Justice Berger in the 50s said prisons should be factories with fences and when you want me to I'll talk a little more about how they do it in Europe. Yeah, I figured um, I was kind of migrating into incarceration, so we'll definitely talk about that okay. in the future. Um, any thoughts in particular on red f- on the red flag law or, or no? If not, that's okay. No, I, I'll pass. I think Lou has a handle on that, and I don't think this is the topic for today's show about what to do with all of the guns in the possession of people who shoot up schools, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Yeah, that's a whole nother, <laughs> another show. Um, but I did, you know, I kind of weaved in uh, that statistic about fire ac- firearm access triples the rate of suicide. Um, it was interesting for me to learn, uh, well, one, just that statistic. Um, but I often hear, too, that 
uh, well, they're they're going to find a way to commit suicide anyway. And the other statistic I read, and I suspect this is a nationwide statistic, is that 90% of suicide survivors do not go on to die by suicide. Hmm. So that's pretty amazing to me. Wow. Um, so um, That's a hopeful yeah. statistic. Uh, but 50% of suicide deaths are, uh, excuse me, firearms account for 50% of suicide deaths. So there is a correlation to suicide risk, and that's why I think red, the red flag law matters. And I agree with you, Lou, that um, we want to get ahead, but as as you well know, we're not going to be able to get ahead of everybody right now. So to me, that red flag law is really critical. And, you know, that's, that's the gap. Um, talk about suicide, and clearly firearms are the most convenient way to do that, arguably. Although I, I would agree if somebody is, you know, determined that they want to take their life, there are other ways that they'll find to do it. Mm-hmm. But there's so many times we respond to suicides all the time in this county, unfortunately. And so many times what we hear is from the family or friend, we had no idea. We never saw this coming. I was shocked. And so even then, if they had an inkling or an inclination or, or concern, maybe a red flag law or something, you know, going down that road mm-hmm. could have prevented that. But so many times it's it's like we had no idea. I, I've, I've lived with this man for 20 years. I had no idea he was suffering from things in the past. And all of a sudden I came home one day and, and he, you know, he committed, left me a note and committed suicide. So that's the difficult part is that we, we can we can see the people that are that are. Um, strong and healthy. We can see the ones that are serious issues, but it's that gap in between that we, we can't identify until it's too late. Um, I don't want to belabor the point, but I think, again, what my my research illuminated to me is I think that's what's so dangerous about the access to the firearm is because the research shows that most suicide attempts are spontaneous. And so that access to firearm makes it just that much more deadly as opposed to having to find a more a less efficient way or a less uh, effective way. Um, and speaking about Europe, um, they they did uh, apparently, I don't know how many decades ago, um, but suicide by natural gas was the most common way to commit suicide in Europe. And they, they reduced access to natural gas and, and they had a control and were able to say that suicides actually decreased when you didn't have that easy way to commit suicide back then. So there has been some research to say, well, if you take away the easy one, uh, the easy opportunity, then you may reduce suicide. So anyway, um, great. Thank you. Um, so getting back to kind of solutions, Tim, you're alluding to different solutions um, about what we do. And Lou, I was going to ask you about SPEAR, which is, I didn't know about that that until I I, um, prepared for the show. And SPEAR is the Special Problem Enforcement and Response Team. Um, Seems to me it's essentially a focused drug enforcement effort. Uh, And we're talking about both drug enforcement and mental health because it just seems like they're so connected in in law enforcement and the criminal justice system. Um, And Quoting you in your press release, we still know probably 80% of crimes committed either are direct crimes or related to the illegal drug industry. So tell us about SPEAR and your thinking about, you know, why why is that a priority? So SPEAR isn't um, specifically a, a drug enforcement task force. We had okay. Trident, okay. which was, and because of things that have changed over time, the, the reduction in um, drug crimes, you know, some, some societal changes, permissiveness, if you will. We took our, our folks that were in Trident, and then we took them from TAG, our threat assessment group, which focused on gang activity and other, you know, high-level crimes. We combined that into one team. 
and, and basically what SPEAR does is we look and say, who are the most serious criminals? What's the most serious crime? Or what's the location where we're seeing you know, a, a big criminal impact? And they focus on that. I, I kind of refer to them as sort of the, the free safety on the, on the field to kind of go wherever they need to go to do whatever they need to do, right? And so, but the reality is, if we're focusing on the, the theft of tools from a hardware store and we can solve that problem, we know 80% of the time the theft of those tools are to pawn them, sell them, whatever, for drugs. So that's where I say that there's still a high percentage of crimes being committed for drugs. Last time we did a survey in the jail, which was several years ago, we found that 40% of the people in jail were there directly on drug-related charges, but another 40% or 80% were um, drug-related issues. I committed a burglary because of drugs, right? So that's kind of what we see. So there's no denial that the, the drug industry, legal, illegal, permissive, not permissive, is driving a lot of crime. Um, and so what SPEAR is, is basically we're looking at that saying, this is a major crimes unit. It's not, you know, the local crime occurring in the city of Carbondale or Glenwood or even out in the county. This is a group that is, is focusing on crimes that are bigger than what one agency can handle and focusing on who's at the top of the list and those are the people or the crime or the location we want to focus on. That's interesting. Um so I, I think of that as the, 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 our drives drive our behaviors. And what I'm hearing you say is your research says that the drive is, in this case, to have drugs. There's a, there's a drive that's behind that as well, and then that's leading to the crime. And, and so SPEAR is meant to uh, address both of those. Um, Tim, and, and I have a, a follow-up question, but Tim, what's been your experience with in, in the criminal justice system of – these drives and what responses best address this? You know, is, is Spear the right approach or are there different well, approaches? Well, <clears throat> I read the uh, press release, Lou, about Spear. Um, and I would say if you're going to talk about mental illness and addiction, you're really talking about public health. Those are real public health problems that manifest themselves with deviant or delinquent or criminal behavior, often pretty involuntary because they're, you're dealing with mental illness and, addic- and or addiction. So when I thought about what we were going to talk about today, this collision, it seems the words that come to my mind, if we kind of reboot and rethink, all the taxpayer resources collectively we're spending to deal with public safety. Um, Public health would sort of be an umbrella. Um, And and I love learning about having social workers and public health specialists now responding to emergency calls and There are states, probably counties too, where they don't use police, marked cars, sirens, um, armed people responding at all. They just take that. Because you can say, what's the impact of mental illness on law enforcement? Flip that. What's the impact of law enforcement on mental illness? And it's there are thousands of examples of in response to a law enforcement 
whistle or shout, all armed, bulletproof vest, red lights flashing, cause that person to die. He'll, he'll try to run, they'll think they see a weapon, and they're dead. And it's not to criticize them, the officers have to protect themselves. Lou, do you have thoughts on that? I I would disagree with part of that, only to the extent that when we get a call like this, there's a lot of unknowns. And so, in my opinion, we don't know, and from our experience, we deal with people that obviously have mental health issues, but are also standing on a bridge threatening people with a knife as they walk by, right? I mean, that's a a law enforcement response, not a counselor response. So, a lot of times, we don't know that. And yes, traditionally, it's the cops that show up with all the stuff on their Batman belt and all that. I mean, Mm -hmm. I understand that. But... Again, because we don't know, we want we don't want to put us in a position, or even the general public, or or a co-responder, or somebody in the mental health field. We're there for public safety, so we have to assume. I mean, when every time I pull a car over, I assume there's a gun in that car or somebody's armed. Right? Chances are there aren't, but I have to assume that. That's the probability and the possibility issue. And so when we respond to these type of folks, these mental these mental issues, we don't know. So that's why we're responding as law enforcement officers. And it is true there are communities that have other things. You know, we have a as as Tim was talking about, it's called a co-responder program. We have crisis workers that are either in the cars with the deputies or can certainly respond to the scene quickly. And oftentimes they'll say, "Hey, we've got this," and the cops and all the gear and everything leave, and they're able to deal with these people at that crisis level because it's not a crime and we support that 100 percent. our program here in garfield county is actually housed in my office and rifle so we're, we're good with that and those are the things i'm talking about about getting ahead of the curve I, i've told people i'll give you half of my jail budget if we could find programs that will prevent people from coming to jail rather than having to spend that money on them once they're in jail yeah. so I, we're all in agreement with that it's just again developing those and getting there lou just for the benefit of me and our listeners, can you describe the co-response program and tell me, maybe not how it came to be, but how does it work? So it basically came to be through legislation. Legislation said we're going to create this program and funding to get crisis workers in the cars with the cops. And, and you know, not... I don't know, maybe some communities have them in every car, but, you know, that's that's probably more theoretical. But what happened is the Aspen Hope Center, which has been here for a long time providing crisis intervention, um, we, we hooked up with them. Um, there's grant money involved and everything. And they're able to now, they're in Garfield County. They started off in, I think, Carbondale and the, and, and the, um, maybe, uh, I'm trying to think, uh, basalt area and everything, expanded into Garfield County. And essentially, it's a crisis worker, a trained crisis worker, that's either with a deputy when they respond to the call so that they can take the lead if we think it's a mental health type of you know issue, um, or if they're not happening to be in the car, they can respond quickly to help us with that. And that's what we're looking for. We're, we're not trained, although we have training and CIT and other things that help us deal with the mentally ill. That's not what I signed up for. I signed up to be a law enforcement officer. So it's great now we compare the law enforcement side when we have to deal with that with the crisis worker when we can deal with that. But they're obviously not – you don't have one with every every deputy. So are they on call 24-7? Or? Y- yes. So there's usually one somewhere maybe in the car or at our office or whatever. Yes, they're on call 24-7. Okay. And the way they're positioned, and again, that's probably more of a, a question for the uh, Aspen Hope Center. But the response is so much quicker than other things we've seen in the in the mental health is- um, uh, community out there. So. Um, the CAHOOTS program in Oregon was one that what came up as a success story. And uh, the latest report on that program was from 2019, uh, you know, three years ago now, but 
according to that research, 1% of calls required police backup. Uh, and it's, and to your point, it's saving $8.5 million a year. Um, so I'm just curious. That's why I was asking about how it works, Lou, is um, how can you really leverage not having an officer respond when you don't need to, but it sounds like it's still at the point where the officer is the first responder, and then you see if you need them. Yeah, it is for a couple of reasons. Again, we don't know what we don't know until we get there and what this person is or what weapons they may or may not have. And it's also for the protection of the co-responder. They're not law enforcement. They're not armed. They're not doing that. They have their tools as far as crisis intervention. So really, it's again, it's a public safety uh, responsibility to protect everybody involved. Um, but again, they're they're they are what they call first responders. This isn't a, a mental health structure that, you know, come see me tomorrow morning and we'll, we'll talk about your issue. They are there on the street responding just like a, just like law enforcement, just like a, um, a paramedic would, just like anybody. And um, once that's either determined that they can handle it, we can pull away and, and reduce that presence to, to make that conversation with the crisis worker and the, and the person, the subject that we're dealing with better. Um, or it might be something where we have to, um, be involved and it, it turns into a criminal episode or one of the things that we're doing too in Colorado, it's a newer law is um, we're, we can transport if it's required to like bring them to the hospital for a mental evaluation. Law enforcement, I think is one of the few um, uh, entities now that can transport those people. So there's a need for us to be there too. If the crisis worker says, I'm concerned about this person. I think they need a mental health evaluation. Let's take them to the hospital. We're the ones that have to do that. Tim, I want to hear your thoughts on that, but it is 430. Uh, bottom of the hour, you're listening to Meet in the Middle show on KDNK Community Access Radio. I'm the host, Dan Richardson, and my guests are Sheriff Lou Valario and Tim McFlynn. Today's show is the criminal justice system where law enforcement and mental health collide. Uh, Tim, your thoughts on the co-response program, and it seems like it, it gets to some of what you were talking about, but what other ideas do you have there? Well, it certainly <clears throat> is what I was talking about, and... When I think about public health, which I said earlier is mental illness and addiction, is the underlying cause of why there is a response so often. So the way I think of when we retool the system, it's public health and safety. Public health and safety. It's not police department. It's public health and safety. And and that's true right here in Carbondale. And I don't know, I know there's a f fairly recent new chief here who's very successful and popular. And I don't know how much they have in resources to do what you're doing, Lou, in Garfield County with, with this program. But um, again, when we get Further along on the show, I'll give some examples that are pretty amazing. And one is, you're from New York originally. <laughs> one is from the Bronx. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, we can, we, is it related to incarceration? Is that like what you're thinking? Because um, you can go ahead and offer that right now. <laughs> uh, I'll hold it. Okay. Um, there was, there was, I don't know if it's a, if I'm admitting this or a, a confession or what, but I sure learned something as a mayor that we have asked police officers, obviously in the town and sheriff's deputies, you mentioned the utility player, the free safety. What I learned the hard way as being mayor is 
we've we've transitioned our law enforcement system to respond to every single possible crisis you can imagine and now we're realizing wow there's there's a better way to do that there's different people different training and so i think um uh i was uh, it was it was eye opening to me to realize what can what's realistic to expect of law enforcement officers um so that was an eye opening experience as a mayor and how do you recruit and train yep. those who respond i mean um and certainly I mean, we're you you think about all the calls that as i said it's the toughest job in every community and it's everything from a domestic violence call the most violent, the most dangerous call for an officer to there's a cat in a tree you know et cetera, et cetera. and i think we need to rethink and redeploy these vast resources to make public health, addiction, and mental illness where we start. Absolutely. And Dan, I don't disagree with that, but to me, that's one of the several prongs we have to use. Law enforcement still has to be one of those prongs. Not everything that we respond to is about public health or mental health or whatever. I mean, there's just some people out there that commit crimes, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, again, domestic violence or homicide or whatever. So we still have to have that component. And the key is trying to identify rapidly which direction do we go. Do we need more cops on the scene? Do we need less cops and more crisis workers or, you know, a combination of both? So it's it's almost that triage type of, of approach. That's the word I was going to use. Yep. It's triage. Yes. How, how do we get dispatch people to do the triage that sometimes has to be in Spanish to get the right team to respond to the situation? And when we come back to jails, what do we do while the people are in jail that could be helpful? And it's, it's, you know, we used to talk the word rehabilitation. And prisons are longer-term confinement than jails usually. So we usually don't think about rehabilitation in jails. But there are opportunities. Um, I'll just I'll read you something, if I may. And this is... <clears throat> bunch of states and counties have been going and looking at European corrections models, both jails and prisons. And they, here's a quote, they see a temporary loss of freedom, not only as punishment for violating society's rules, but also as an opportunity that should not be wasted. Jail and prison officers are taught that their mission is to diagnose the factors that led to criminal behavior and equip offenders to be law-abiding members of societies. Prisons and jails are more like walled campuses than cages. And Connecticut, Pennsylvania, North Dakota, Oregon, and others are using that model even on the local level. But, of course, the facility that was built to be a jail isn't built to be a campus to be a campus but if if the mindset is this isn't going to change overnight 
and we're trying to think about nationwide, we're trying to get at the problems <clears throat> of crime in our society, and we know mental health and addiction, i.e. public health issues, are at the root of so much of it, then we've got decades to get it right. But I think getting it right means doing something other than just a cell. Because that has to be criminogenic. It almost makes that offender feel either they're wrongfully charged, shouldn't be there, or now their life is even in worse shape because they won't be able to get a job and can't see their family. So depression goes through the roof. Those That's jails of the future. And if I could just lay the groundwork for that, and again, Tim's right. You know, the Garfield County Jail was built in 2001. I wasn't the sheriff at the time. But the design of jails in this country over the last 20 years now has, has changed drastically with that. But even so, in Garfield County, we have, I want to get too deep in the weeds about how it works, but our, our minimum unit, where the, the, the lightest level of offender, if you will, it's like a dormitory. There's no bars, there's no doors, there's bunks, and, and there's a day room. They come out and they can play cards or watch TV or whatever. So it's, it's, it's not just cells. Now, granted, the serious violent ones are, yeah. you know, yes, there are cells that, that they're in. So, so that is moving forward just in the design and the understanding of, of you know, jails. Um, the other thing is with regard to um, just kind of want to follow up, Tim talked about the volunteer program, the buddy program and all that. We have a tremendous number of volunteers in our community to come to our jail. Before COVID, we had 100 volunteers coming into the Garfield County Jail from the community, offering everything from life skills to um, AA to, you know, religious services, you name it. Because we recognize that. We recognize from my end a need to do what we can to help these folks in the short time they're here. And jail is a short-term holding. Um, we've, we, with COVID, of course, that dropped, and now we're, re, we're kind of rebuilding our volunteer group. I think we're up to about 40 or 50 folks. So we do have programs that we're providing to our inmates. And again, on the average, I, I, I can't swear to this. I haven't done a number lately, but I would say the average time somebody spends in jail is less than six days. So the ones that are there longer can provide more opportunity for these programs. The ones that are there short term, it literally is kind of a turnaround. Lou, just real quick, how how does that six days compare? Do you think to national average or state average? You know, it, it. I don't know. And again, I'm 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 sort of winging that number. It could be longer, or a little shorter, but it's relatively in jail short term, and it's increase. It's decreasing in terms of and just because with um again the new the new push in this country and even in the state with um more uh, um, PR bonds, uh, personal recognizance bond, no cash bonds required, lowering some of like the drug offenses now. A lot of them are misdemeanors. It used to be felonies. So so that number actually could be even less um, in terms okay. of the number of days because things are changing in the criminal justice system. So considerably less in prison, Tim. And just to comment on that, uh, <clears throat> are most of the people in your jail pre-trial? Good point. And, you know, when I, back when I was a prosecutor for years, seeing people presumed innocent spending 30 days sometimes way longer in order to go to trial or dispose of the case is criminogenic. It makes people more likely to self-medicate, to violate 
the rules when they get out. It just is. There's a new bill in the legislature, an article about it a few days ago, of a woman um, was a public defender and now has a bill to address the bail issue so that pretrial release, OR release, etc., becomes the norm. And just you mentioned the buddy program because I got the flyer about it's their 50th anniversary this year. You know, adult buddies, and I think it's great, Lou, that you have so many available. If they're sort of on call so that when someone is suitable for that, they can be in the jail and be helpful. Again, that helps it not be such a regressive experience. You know, to, to add to that, one of the programs, and I want to, again, I want to kind of stay on your topic, Dan, but um, five years ago when somebody was released from jail or like out the back door they went, adios, have a nice life, and we'd most likely see them again soon. Now we have programs that, um, those programs that we provide in the jail, we have what we call um, a warm handoff to community programs. So if somebody's in the AA program in the jail, we're going to hand them off to whoever in, in the community when they're out of jail so they can continue with that program. So there's a lot of programs we're doing now in the specific, um, um, we actually have a full-time person in our in our um, organization that handles all these things. It could be, um, you know, pr- providing them to a, a mental health organization. It could be getting them a bus ticket to go home. It could be putting them in a motel room while they can go get a job. And, and so these are all sort of new things that we've been doing in the last few years as well. So we're not just slamming that door and saying, good luck. The, the jail, the sheriff's office, law enforcement has become um, more interwoven in in that process by again that's those, what we call them those war handoffs and the other thing is as tim mentioned we've re- now we're adding into this conversation the uh the courts system you know the people that are in jail and he asked so pre-trial is um you've not yet been convicted mm-hmm. and then sentenced and in colorado you can't sentence anybody more than two years in a county jail otherwise they have to go to state prison but we're anywhere between 60 to 70 percent pre-trial so they're waiting for trial now some of those issues of course are why are they still in jail and but that's that's beyond that's the courts. The judge says no ten thousand dollar bond and they can't make it. Or the judge says your PR bond you can leave. Um, and then with the with the court systems and how long it takes, we'll have an inmate that will go to a, a hearing. And the next thing we know, it's like, okay, well, further proceedings 90 days from now. So now they're in jail for 90 days until their next court hearing. So that kind of perpetuates that problem as well. So now we have to add in the court structure. <laughs> and is that, um, I'm happy to say I'm a little naive to this, but if can they post bond in most cases and they just don't, and so therefore they're stuck in jail? I would say some can. I mean, there are people literally that honestly like kind of that institutional safety, if you will. But no, for the most part, a lot of it is they can't. They don't have the funds. They don't have the resources. Okay. So they are they are there. What we are seeing, though, is a, a, a shift in that where more people are being eligible for bond, lowering bonds, no bonds at all. Um, and then the other thing we've had for a while, it's called a um, pretrial assessment, where even before they get to court, there's an assessment done as far as what type of crime, what's their criminal history, et cetera, et cetera, where there's a recommendation to the judge ahead of that to say, we think this person is safe to be in the community. And, and the judge will let them out on a, on a personal recognizance bond. It, it, it became more of a, um, 
equalizing the field instead of being um, discriminatory, you've got money and I don't, you get to get out and I have to stay. Now it's based more on evidence-based um, you know, assessment. So real quickly, you and I both rob a bank and you've got the money to get out. You get out. I'm stuck in jail, although we both robbed the bank and committed the same crime. So it's, it, it's kind of changed it from being discriminating against the, 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 the poorer versus the, the, the wealthier and more we both robbed the bank. What's our history? What's our tendency to be violent? What's our tendency to get back into the community? and be productive again. So that's how those programs work. Isn't, I just had an aha moment, isn't that the low-hanging fruit then? If, if, if I understood you correctly, 60 to 70% of your inmates are pretrial. Correct. And you said you'd give half your budget to prevent people from entering jail. I assume you could mean being there too. Isn't, don't you have a built-in incentive to work with the court system to minimize that pre, those pretrial stays? We do, but the problem is once they're in the criminal justice system. So, so if we're talking about people with public health or mental health issues, once they act out because they have no other way and act out criminally, okay, now they're in the system. Now they're in the jail. Now they're dealing with the courts and all that. What I was talking about was like the, like our co-responder program. Yeah. Let's get out ahead of that so they don't commit yeah. the crime and wind up in the wrong wrong system. Because there are a lot of people. Again, you you opened up with the statistics that said there's a lot of people in jail that have mental health issues, but because of lack of services, because of lack of understanding, because of lack of whatever, they eventually act out criminally, and then it's like okay, great, now you go to jail and you know we've solved the problem when we haven't solved anything okay um tim you were you were anxious to talk about that i was going to ask about the san quentin prison that you and i talked about earlier is that something you want to talk about sure um and uh how it's just a fundamentally different approach to incarceration while you and i were talking we came up with this uh, this notion of being innovative as opposed to punitive, and I think San Quentin for you represented a way to do that. So, and for the benefit of <clears throat> the listeners, everyone probably knows San Quentin is in the Bay Area. It's actually in Marin County, and California, which isn't Garfield County, right? <laughs> Fortunately. <laughs> <laughs> But California, through their Department of Corrections, took the San Quentin prison and created what I was saying earlier. Those are longer periods of confinement than typically are in a local county jail. And without going through the steps, they're now part of the Mount. Tamil Pius Community College and at San Quentin it's a campus and it's sort of like I said factories with fences and they have 3,000 volunteers for 3,000 inmates and they're teaching everything about how to be healthy how to be productive What's your trade? So that recidivism is plummeting because they're collecting data on everyone who's released. Now that's far afield from what we're talking about here in Garfield County, but it's it's an example of something that works where they took an old facility, the oldest prison in California, and turned it into a campus. Uh, that's a 
fascinating idea. So it's it's as if they're combining or not. It's, what they're combining is a vocational and academic rehabilitation. Um, is that a fair? Yes. Yeah. Um, and they're use, they're using because we all know that exposure to a lot of the people who are going to be there to nature is hugely beneficial to sports, to art, to music, and to your trade and education. And they're having incredible results. And, and Dan, if you can, I think that's a great um, program to look at, and we're always looking at ways to improve. What, what I would say, of course, obviously there's a difference, as Tim said, between prison and, and, and the jail, and, and I run the jail. And, and I'll be the first to tell you, and I say this all the time, a majority of the people that are in our jail, and probably most rural jails, and, and they're not they're not bad people. They've made bad decisions or bad choices. Now that doesn't mean there shouldn't be accountability and consequences. And but you know we're talking things like again drug issues or DUI or domestic. And again we're not excusing that behavior. But they're not career criminals. And, and most of the people in our jail, probably most of the people that are successful in these programs are the same way. They've just yeah. made bad choices in their life. They're being held accountable, but they're taking advantage of a program so they don't do it again. Exactly. On the other hand, you have some, what I would call career, you know, psychotic criminals that have that criminal mind. You know, a, a buddy program isn't going to work on, on Ted Bundy or Jeffrey Dahmer or something like that. So we have to differentiate who are the ones we can focus these programs on, get them down the right path and, and help them. And then who are the ones that, quite frankly, just need to be locked away from society because they're too dangerous to, to be released? And that's that balancing act. That I don't deal with it as the jail. I hold people that the courts say hold. You know, I, I don't have that discretion to say, no, I'm going to let them loose or not. But um, so the programs are a good option for probably most um, people that are incarcerated, whether it's jail or, or prison. But there are some that just have to be, again, the term you use, unfortunately, is somewhat caged or kept away from society. And, you know, your comment about working with the courts, that's another part of the criminal justice system, and it's a key player because of their authority. And I would imagine in every county there are some judges who are a little more along that path. Recently retired Judge County, Pitkin County Judge Aaron Fernandez Ely mm -hmm. was very innovative in her court with good results. So they're a partner that has to be part of kind of rebooting and rethinking this whole issue. Yeah, I think um, restorative justice and the services that um, um, uh, I'm blanking on the nonprofit down in Glenwood. Um, I want to say youth, um, youth Zone. Thank you. Uh, youth Zone provides, I think, is a. I think it's a fantastic program. I don't know if either yeah. of you have any thoughts, but if when I was before I came here, as I was in Glenwood Springs, you know, when you and I were there, um, we actually brought a restorative justice program. Uh, one of our one of our um, officers studied it, um, originated in uh, New Zealand through the Maori tribe there or whatever, and basically it was holding them accountable in front of the victims, you know, talking about the impacts, apologizing, and and so yeah, we were actually doing that in Glenwood Springs before it even became kind of a restorative justice program in the central. Um, uh, judicial system, but great program in some cases, maybe in most cases, but it's not going to fix everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so we have, we have about five minutes left and I thought we'd kind of pull things together and, 
Tim, what I, you know, the the program you just described in San Quentin and otherwise in, in, in other places, um, as I mentioned, to me sounds like a co- combining vocational academic rehabilitation. And to me, when you add in um, also something you were referencing, that healthcare-based support, you, you said public health, but it's healthcare-based support, um, especially as it relates to suicide prevention, then all of a sudden we're starting to talk about an innovative approach to both law enforcement and the criminal justice system. Um, but I have to say I'm optimistic that, um, Lou, what you describe, I feel like locally we're, we're definitely moving in, in the right direction. Uh, how fast is another question. But, yeah. um, but any thoughts on, on this comprehensive approach? And for both of you, you are far uh, better experts than me it, Am I missing? Are there things that should also be considered or the things that we haven't talked about? Well, I'm, I'll am i start, if I may. I'm optimistic as well. And I think it's because everyone is aware of something's not working and it's ready to change and evolve because we're spending zillions of dollars and we're not there yet and as you know Dan from conversation I worked as a civil rights lawyer to eliminate children from adult jails throughout California 100,000 kids a year with adults had to be stopped and I worked to stop recycling public inebriates through jails and courts and I'm one person but those experiences tell me that right-thinking people collaboratively together with sheriffs and courts can take steps forward right here in Garfield, Eagle, and Pitkin. You know, Dan, I think all of these are important, and arguably there a lot of them are successful, and if not, we kind of re-steer and, and do that, and we want to be innovative and we want to continue. But in reality, I think one of the questions we have to ask is, are we kind of um, addressing the symptom and not the cure? And I say that because it's just statistically you said 40% of people in, in jails are, have mental illness. What was that 20 years ago? Was it half of that? Mm-hmm. Was it 10%? What's caused that increase over time in our society, and are we addressing that issue rather than just allowing it to increase and in dealing with the people that are dealing with. It. So I think that's another thing. We got to really get down to the root and, and kind of fix the, you know, the, the, the disease, if you will, rather than just constantly focus on the symptoms. And, and again, there's a lot of good stuff out there for the symptoms, but are we addressing why have we seen an increase in, in mental illness over the years in co- incarcerated? I don't know the answer to that. It's, it's obvious. The statistics support it. <clears throat> well, I, I think you're right, Lou, but I also think that I mean, there's something to be said that Tim said that we don't want to make the problem worse. And I think that's why I wanted to discuss the programs that you're working on, the Mm co-response, the hands-off program. I think that is taking the edge off of law enforcement that may have contributed to um, um, making matters worse unintentionally. Um, So clear. But any uh, with just, oh, it looks (laughs) like we're we're almost there. So Well, one one last comment. Things have changed so rapidly with social media, (laughs) with adolescents that are driving illness and addiction. So 
Absolutely agree. You could do an entire show just about yeah. social media. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Tim McFlynn and Sheriff Lou Valario for joining me today. It was an honor. Uh, today's show was the criminal justice system where law enforcement and mental health collide. And as the title suggests, it's no easy topic. I appreciate you both for your ability and willingness to demonstrate respectful dialogue on such a tough sub subject. For listeners, please remember that you can call 988, a new three-digit number to call for mental health, substance use, or emotional crisis help. Uh, this is an important new hotline, different than 911. 911, you're going to get Sheriff Lou Valario or one of his <laughs> deputies. Or 988, you're going to get a mental health professional, um, which is much different. So hopefully that will help stem the the rise in um, people in your jails. So I'm Dan Richardson. Thank you for listening to KDNK and the Meet in the Middle show, and we'll see you back here in a month. Thanks, everybody.